friends. Hello, hello, hello. Good Monday morning to you. This is Ellie Krug on AM 950 with Ellie 2.0 Radio. That would be 2.0 Radio, where I spot high, spotlight idealists. I talk about idealism and I share about my work as an idealist. Um, boy, that's a lot of idealism all in one sentence, isn't it? All of that is based on my belief in our common good. And the idea that a single person can make a difference in the world. Yep, I will believe that until I take my, my dying last breath. So here we go. Um, many of us are familiar with the books and the work of Roald, Roald Dahl. Um, he wrote James and the Giant Peach, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, and many, many other books. And he's inspired many children and the imaginations of many adults as well. But most do not know about a daughter that he has. Um, she would be the next to the youngest of his four children. Her name is Ophelia Dahl. Um, and she is the daughter of Roald Dahl and Patricia Neal, who were married for nearly 30 years. You may uh, remember that Patricia Neal was an actress, very famous actress. I remember her from um, many Jimmy Stewart movies. Um, but uh, she, um, uh, so the two of them were married. They had Ophelia. And what I'm going to relate to you is from a piece that appeared in The New Yorker in December of 2017. Uh, the piece is titled The Poetry of Systems, and it's by a writer, um, uh, Ariel Levy. Um, and so much of what you're going to get here comes out of that New Yorker piece, but also some of it comes from Wikipedia and some of it comes from other research. So Ophelia uh, was born in 1964. And... Um, uh, you know, while she had the position of being a child from two very famous parents and, you know, from a position of coming from a family with some money, and while that alone may make for a great story, I actually want to talk about Ophelia's work as an idealist, as someone who brought health care, um, and it continues to bring health care to the poorest of the poor in Africa and in Haiti. So, um, Ophelia, uh, when she was 18 years old, uh, went and volunteered in Haiti um, to do healthcare work while she was there. So, 18-year-old, she was, you know, on this uh, beginning of a life adventure. She's writing back to her dad, telling him that she's, you know, working with these poor people, etc. While she was in Haiti, she met a man who was um, about four or five years older than her, a man named Paul Farmer who was a um, soon-to-be med student and also volunteering in Haiti. And they, the two of them actually fell in love. And so part of this is the generation of a love story. They did not marry. That didn't happen, but they did fall in love. And, um, and at the time, a farmer, um, uh, Paul Farmer was, as I said, volunteering, and then he eventually went to medical school at Harvard to get his um, medical degree. The two of them, both idealists, did something that's incredibly important as it relates to changing the world. They paid attention. They looked around in Haiti. They saw all the poverty. They also saw what didn't work. And what they, 
what they came to do is to believe in the practice of redistributive justice. And what that meant was that poor people had the right to the same quality of health care that rich people, that would be people from the first world, um, believed they had a right to as well. Their approach was to prioritize poor people's needs rather than, and rather than give them the cheapest or the easiest, they gave them high-quality health care. That was their goal. As Ophelia put it this way, you don't say, quote, when I live in Boston, I have this one set of standards, and when I'm in Haiti or Rwanda, I'm just not going to uh, love the, quote, crap, unquote, out of them, unquote. Uh, uh, the quote's not all that good. Uh, didn't do it very well on the radio, but you've got the idea that her position was you don't have one standard in Boston and you don't have a different standard in Haiti or Rwanda. You have a same standard for all humans because they deserve that. So, um, uh, they, the two of them founded an organization called Partners in Health. And Partners in Health then... Um, began very on a very granular basis with the help of a benefactor. So they they found a man who had, was a millionaire who decided that he would give his money away in um, in incremental doses to good causes. So they had a sugar daddy um, to help fund their idealism. Thank. God, I mean, idealists need sugar daddies or sugar mamas or, or sugar humans. Um, but eventually, um, in 2013, Partners in Health opened a 200,000-square-foot, 300-bed hospital in Haiti, powered by solar panels. It's the largest solar-powered hospital in the world. Now, you know, that is, in Haiti, that is a big operation. 200,000 square foot, 300 beds. Um, that was a big deal. But they did not stop there. They've done uh, health care across the, the country, across the world. They were on the ground fighting Ebola in Rwanda in 2014. That same year, they went to Sierra, Sierra Leone, where um, in Sierra Leone, there are only, even today, only 150 doctors in the entire country. Maternal deaths due to childbirth in Sierra Leone are 1 in 17 women. That's compared to 1 in 3,800 women in the U.S., which is still abysmal, and 1 in 20,000 women in Finland and Italy. Um, and so, obviously, Sierra Leone has a horrible, um, had a horrible problem. So they went, um, Partners in Health went and continues to work to rebuild the entire medical system of Sierra Leone. And there, the, the organization's Partners in Health's philosophy is not to respond to crises, but to show up and, re, and to change the landscape as it relates to healthcare in the community or in the country in which it is working. And one of the ways it does that is it employs local people. Like 95% of the people it employs are locals, not people who are bussed in or brought in or flown in, but these are local people. They're teaching them valuable skills. They have the philosophy that if you teach a nurse important skills, they can do things that many doctors, you know, when there's a shortage of doctors that the nurses can step in. And there are some quotes from the piece uh, in The New Yorker that I'd like to relate to you. One of those is, is this quote. 
um, Ophelia speaking, quote, I know what it is like to have a lovely life, she said. I know what it is, uh, what it is to be able to take Luke, that's her son, to a really good hospital. But more than that, I know what it is to luck- luxuriate, to plant a tree and assume we'll be able to see it every year. I don't want to not be able to do that. But I, but I don't think it's possible to do without knowing about all the inequity. She shook her head. The idea that we live in somehow different worlds calms us all. First world, second world, third world. It's all one world. Unquote. And then she went on to talk about how the work is so incredibly difficult. She went on to say, quote, The work feels more crushing and sadder to me than it's ever felt. You see all the ways in which you failed to do certain things, even though there's incremental progress, she said. I am unfailingly optimistic, though I think to not be optimistic is just about the most privileged thing you can be. If you can be pessimistic, you are basically deciding that there's no hope for a whole group of people who can't afford to think that way. And then her last quote that I just love is this. You push, you push, 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 unquote. You know, she is right that we live in a world where we feel we are disconnected from other people and we can divide it up into first and second and third worlds. We can do that. We do that in our lives even. We do that as we walk down the street, dividing our lives between us and them. And you know, all it takes is the Ebola crisis to understand that the world is totally connected because it was the Ebola crisis, as you may recall from a couple of years ago, that had all of us panicked because people were flying from Africa to come to the United States. And remember the stories about people getting quarantined and some of the medical personnel getting sick. Ophelia Dahl, a great idealist who put her money where her mouth is, put her energy with her mouth is, she's been doing this work for nearly 30 years, helping the least of us. She gets what it means to be interconnected. One of my heroes. When we come back from our break, um, I'm going to speak a little bit about work that I'm doing. Um, you've been listening to me, um, Ellen Krug on Ellen, Ellen, Ellen 2.0, a different kind of radio show, one that taps into the idealism of all of us. If you like what you hear, um, email me at le2.0radio, that's le2.0radio at gmail.com, or visit my website at ellikrug.com. When we come back, I'll speak with you a little bit more. Thank you. At Pride Institute, being LGBTQ plus is the norm, not the exception. Their highly trained and skilled staff understand your issues and will help you live a happy, healthy life as a proud LGBTQ plus person. They offer you hope to overcome your addiction and live the life you want. Their treatment programs are designed to assist you in developing the knowledge, skills, and attitudes for long-term recovery. Therapy groups include health education, LGBTQ issues, HIV and chronic illness, trauma, grief and loss, transgender support, nicotine recovery, education, and sexual health. Pride Institute offers a residential treatment program, a partial hospitalization program that includes 
day programming with lodging, and an intensive outpatient program. If you or someone in your life could benefit from guidance and coping skills, life balance, and other tools necessary for long-term recovery, check them out at pride-institute.com or call 800-547-7433 now. Lowry Hill Meats, your neighborhood full-service butcher shop that works directly with family farms. Using whole animals gives Lowry Hill Meats the benefit of preparing custom cuts and dry aging. They offer beef, lamb, goat, pork, and poultry, including whole duck, roasting hens, turkey, quail, pheasant, and Cornish hens. Their sausages are made fresh in-house weekly using 40 rotating recipes. Try their handcrafted sandwiches. They are second to none. Lowry Hill Meats is located at 1934 Hennepin Avenue in Minneapolis or online at LowryHillMeats.com. I'm Adam Jennings, and I approve this message. Most politicians fall into two categories. Robots who focus group every word they say and wingnuts who go off script and off the rails. Here's my story spoken from the heart. I worked at the Ford plant as a proud member of the United Auto Workers. I served in the Minnesota Army National Guard. I owned a small business that helped homeless vets find housing. I've overseen a $9 billion portfolio. I'm a member of my city council, and I'm married to a pediatrician and have children who attend public schools. So I don't need a pollster to tell me what working families need. Healthcare is a right, and gun violence is a wrong. And we are the only country in the world that elects politicians who haven't figured this out. It's time for a change. You don't need a mediator or yes man in Washington. You deserve a fighter. Join me at JenningsForCongress.com, and let's take our party back. Paid for by Adam Jennings for Congress. Hi, it's Tom inviting you to the Blue State Ball VIP reception on Saturday, March 10th at the Blaisdell. VIP starts at 5.30 where you can meet and take selfies with me, Norman Goldman, and other AM950 hosts. The reception is a hosted bar with butler past hors d'oeuvres, great music from Paul Metza, and signed book giveaways. Then stick around for general admission at 7. So come mingle with me, Norman Goldman, and other AM950 hosts during the Blue State Ball VIP reception. VIP tickets are at am950radio.com. I'll see you at the Blue State Ball. Welcome back to Ellie 2.0 on AM 950. This is your host, Ellie Krug. How are you? I hope your Monday is going well, and I hope the traffic is not too difficult for you, and I hope you're not pulling your hair out one way or the other, because Mondays, yes, they're the beginning of the week, but you know what? They are also the start of something, and I love starting things because it's a fresh, it's a fresh, you know, kind of uh, uh scale it's it's you know it's it's all clean and we get to do what we want to with that palette with that piece of paper whatever with the week itself so it's up to you about how the week goes i know i know rosy optimist on monday morning so i want to uh on this segment i want to go back to me as a kid um Back uh, when I launched this show in January, I spoke about my idealism and about how it was sparked by TV images and the words of Dr. King and Robert F. Kennedy and about reading in Life magazine uh, that came in to my house every week. I so looked forward to getting that magazine and I would devour it. I absolutely would. In retrospect, I think <clears throat> some of that made me a fairly unusual 9 or 10-year-old. Yes, I think it did. And then this um, 
offbeatedness. I don't even know if that's a phrase, but this weirdness about me continued into my early teens. I had a fantasy about creating a neighborhood newspaper, believe it or not. And I started writing copy for that thing. It never got beyond um, uh, the paper in my desk because this, of course, was before computers. And I did not have a, a typewriter at that time. Um, the, but I had this fantasy about creating a newspaper. And then when I was um, a teenager, believe it or not, I used to create polls, you know, surveys uh, to get the opinions of people on various topics, including like some social topics of, of the early 1970s. Um, and I used to go to the mall, believe it or not. I'm a teenager. I went to the mall. I had a clipboard and I would go up to strangers and ask, can I ask you a few questions? I did that. And I mean, as I look back, it's like, that was pretty bold of you, um, Ellie. Um, and, you know, and I think that in retrospect, all of that was, was about me wanting to connect with humans. I do. I think that it was my attempt to connect with humans. And somehow I, I must have stumbled along the idea that it is the connection between humans. It's the ability to be connected through word or through image or through touch or through presence. The ability to be connected that makes the difference in our country and in our world. Um, you know, and in the segment I just spoke about, I spoke about uh, Ophelia Dahl, who understands about that being connected and about how the we fool ourselves when we think we are not connected or when we build barriers to stop those connections. Because we're human. We get connected one way or the other. I mean, we, we do get connected through disease or through illness because we breathe the same air as other people. So maybe it's not at all a coincidence that here I am on the air, on the air, not with one half hour show, but also with a, on a Monday, but also with an hour long show on Sundays. I know it's a lot of radio here. I don't think it's a coincidence that I'm here speaking with you right now. I, you know, I, I, some invisible hand of fate. I don't know. Now, in my background, more recently, I ran a nonprofit named Call for Justice, which sadly is no longer in existence. It faded away after I left it, um, and I had thought I had left it in very good hands. But, but when I was the executive director of Call for Justice, I created a newsletter <coughs> called The Legal Connector that uh, went out to a thousand social service agencies and nonprofit legal providers. The purpose of The Legal Connector was to talk about legal resources that exist for low-income people. But the critical purpose, mission of the Legal Connector was to connect humans. Yep, a very innovative phrase there for the name of the news, newsletter, the Legal Connector. It was to bring humans together with information and with each other. And so um, that brings me to what is... Uh, what happened later when I launched my human inclusivity training company and speaking company, Human Inspiration Works. So in the summer of 2016, just as I was getting that company ready to launch, I decided that I would, I would create my own newsletter for my human inclusivity work. And that newsletter um, was... Uh, was intended to help inspire people. I mean, I go around 
Um, and you know, most of you listening right now, you've never heard my speaks, uh, me speak, or you've never heard me train. I'm not a believer that when I train, I'm not a believer in commanding people that they need to be more inclusive other, of other humans, that they need to make other humans feel as if they matter. I'm not, I'm not really big in, in issuing edicts or commands to do that because you know what? That does not work. What does work is inspiring people, is, is getting through, getting past the layer that we all put up, um, you know, between us and other people. We all do it. That includes me. That we, Getting past that layer, going around it or piercing it or going through it or whatever, um, getting past that layer to inspire the listener, to tell them, you know what? Let's unleash that empathetic heart that you have. Let's do that. You can do that. You can get past your fear. You can be good to other humans. It is not a mistake that the name of my company is Human Inspiration Works. And if you think about it, it's a play on words because human inspiration does work. It does cause people to change the way they go about the world. So... My newsletter, which I created in the summer of 2016, I came to name The Ripple. And I've explained that on some other shows, but The Ripple is derived from a speech that Robert F. Kennedy gave in Cape Town, South Africa in June of 1966. It's a speech that has since been labeled The Ripples of Hope speech. And I so love the idea of that we ripple from one person to another that I wanted to name my newsletter The Ripple. And I've got to tell you, I'm not uh, uh, proficient, although I'm a heck of a lot better with technology than what I used to be. And me fashioning and creating the template for this newsletter and getting it put on constant contact and, and, and going through all of the machinations involved with that was not easy. But I did it. And the first issue of The Ripple went out in July of 2016 with 200 recipients. So it's an email newsletter. So I had 200, 200 people on the on the list to, to receive the newsletter. And ever since then, everywhere I go, whenever I speak, I bring a sign-up sheet and I ask people to sign up. Um, it's totally voluntary, you know, but with my audiences, but I'm getting somewhere between 50 and 60% of audience members signing up for my newsletter. Um, yesterday, I spoke to a group of legal professionals, asked them to sign up, and, and um, when I got home and I looked at the sign-up sheet out of 32 people, it looked like I, I had um, 14 or 16 people sign up for it. Uh, one of the persons wrote that was in the room, where they, when she got the sign-up sheet, she wrote this, quote, I'm already a subscriber and I love, she put that in capital letters and underlined it, love your newsletter. Unquote, which, of course, made me feel really, really good. Um, I'm, uh, as, as, literally, as I'm uh, telling you this, uh, I am working on the next issue of The Ripple. It goes out every month. I try to get it out by the 18th or 19th of every month. And right now, when this issue goes out, it will go out to not 200 people, but to nearly 3,200 people. Yep, my newsletter list has increased by that much in a year and a half. The Ripple share stories about our empathetic hearts, how they, can re how they repeatedly show up for other humans. 
So I wrote about Breakfast with Dads, um, which you may have heard me speak about, where, you know, there was uh, this event in Dallas at a middle school, which was 90% um, subsidized uh, breakfast and lunch, where they wanted to bring in father figures or dads to um, talk about mentoring and to teach the boys um, in the room, um, because it was a dad-son thing, teach the boys about how to tie ties. They ran out of dads. They didn't have enough dads. A lot of boys didn't have father figures. The call went out for 50 dads, and by the time they had the event, 600 step-in dads showed up for this event. I mean, it was an unbelievable, unbelievable um, story. And I wrote about that in The Ripple. And you read that and you see, yes, our empathetic hearts can be opened. Yes, all we have to do is be asked. All we have to do is be given the pathway. I write about, I've written in, in The Ripple about a police officer adopting a boy that he had met on multiple occasions by going to the boy's house, the house in great chaos. I've uh, The story coming out soon will be about a group of co-workers who bought a, a man one of their newer employees who had been walking to work 11 miles each way and never talked about it, but they figured it out and they bought him a car. They bought him a used car, so he didn't have to do that anymore. So if you, if you have an interest in, re in reading about the Ripple and getting on the news list, you can go to my website at elliekrug.com. Um, on the menu bar, you'll see newsletter. You can just click on a link, and, and you can, you'll get signed up for the newsletter. And if you don't like it, you can unsubscribe. But please consider being on my newsletter. Okay, I've run out of time. You've been listening to me, Ellie Krug, one of uh, the relatively few transgender radio hosts in the world with Ellie 2.0 on AM 950. If you enjoyed the show, email me at Ellie 2.0, radio at gmail.com. Please tell others about this show. Um, I'm trying to make this into something national. Um, I need to make sure I thank my producer, which uh, sometimes I forget to do. His name is Brett Johnson, and Brett is like the best, absolute best. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com, sign up for The Ripple, and I will be back next week with more about idealism and heroes and traveling the world. Bye.